And welcome back to another episode of the Ninja Nerd Podcast. We're continuing our discussion, our mini-series, if you will, on adrenergic antagonists. This is part two of our autonomic pharmacology. We hope you enjoyed the first one, and we're just going to kind of keep going through this as we go through this four-part mini-series. So, if you haven't already, please go on to ninjanerd.org, grab your subscription, whatever you would like, notes, illustrations, follow along with us, and hopefully you really can make it worth it for this episode on adrenergic antagonists. Zach, how you feeling, first of all? I feel good, man. I feel good. I think this is a, a great um, podcast. I think it's outstanding to kind of start off, especially for those students out there who need to kind of have a good grasp on pharmacology to just blast <laughs> the uh, step one boards. I think that we're going to be able to help you to do that. And we're doing just that. So let's go ahead and just get started then. Zach, first things first, we kind of have to, if you already listened to the first episode on adrenergic agonists, it's kind of a, the same thing. We have to really talk about a lot about the adrenergic antagonist now, more of the sympathetic nervous system. So we have to figure out where these 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 adrenergic neurons, where they go, where they uh, wh- what do they act on, and uh, talking again about epinephrine, norepinephrine, and just figuring out when they do act upon these receptors, what types of effects will they have? Exactly. So I think uh, Rob kind of touched on that perfectly, that whenever we talk about the adrenergic system, it's that basically the sympathetic nervous system. So these neurons are releasing norepinephrine. And so norepinephrine, we already talked about this. This should be a quick review that it's kind of synthesized from tyrosine, right? So tyrosine is that amino acid, gets converted into L-dopa, L-dopa gets converted into dopamine, dopamine gets converted into norepinephrine, and the norepinephrine gets stored in these vesicles and adrenergic neurons. You stimulate the sympathetic neurons. When they're stimulated, they generate action potentials, cause calcium influx in that synaptic bulb. Boom, norepinephrine gets released into the synapse. When it diffuses across the synapse, it then goes and binds onto particular receptors, adrenergic receptors. As we talked about, there's alpha and there's beta. So there's alpha 1, alpha 2, beta 1, beta 2, beta 3. If you guys remember, follow along with me. Whenever norepinephrine hits that alpha 1 receptor, it's primarily the vascular smooth muscle. So it's going to cause that sucker to what? vasoconstrict, right? So it's going to hit the contraction button on that and it's going to really cause them to squeeze. And so it causes an increase in the vascular resistance within our blood vessels, shoot up the actual blood pressure. We talked about that. They also have some alpha-1 receptors on the pupil, right? To dilate. And you also have alpha-1 receptors on the sphincters of the, around the urethra and the rectum. So the internal ones, so that you don't actually defecate on yourself, obviously. Then we have the alpha-2 and those are present on where? presynaptic nerve terminals. Remember, they bind there and inhibit norepinephrine release. You're like, wait, that's weird. I know, but it's more of that sympatholytic effect. So it's one of those ones that's an, it's an agonist, but it has an ad, an opposing effect. So when it hits the alpha-2 receptor, again, what are you doing? You're hitting that presynaptic nerve terminals and shutting down norepinephrine release. If you shut down norepinephrine release, then what do you do? You don't have as much norepinephrine being released in the central nervous system. You don't have as much being released onto the heart and onto the blood vessels. Then there's also beta-1 receptors. And I told you beta-1 receptors are really important because these are present primarily on the heart, on the nodal tissue and on the contractile tissue. So it's going to increase your heart rate if you stimulate them. It's going to increase the contractility, which will increase your cardiac output and try to push more blood out of the heart. We also said that there's beta-2 receptors. And this is smooth muscle, and it's present within the bronchial smooth muscle. It's present on the blood vessels. And so they may promote vasodilation, reducing your resistance, reducing the blood pressure, but also helping to dilate vessels of your skeletal muscles and cardiac muscle so that whenever you're running away from a bear, you have lots of blood going to those muscles to contract. We also said 
that if it's on the bronchial smooth muscle, and again, we're trying to relax this. Remember I told you beta two, alpha one opposing, right? Alpha one contracts, beta two, smooth muscle relaxes. So if it relaxes, you get the vasodilatory effect, but you also dilate the bronchioles because again, there's smooth muscle in that bronchial wall. And so if you dilate that puppy, you're going to get more airflow moving in and out. We also say that there's beta-2 receptors that are present also on what? The uterine smooth muscle. So you want a kind of a mixture. You want alpha-1. So whenever the woman wants to actually go into her labor process and to expel the baby, you want the alpha-1 to bind onto the smooth muscle to cause contractin, to expel. But whenever the woman is not at her point of labor, you want to have more beta-2 receptors on. Why? Because if you hit that one, it inhibits the smooth muscle from contracting so that she doesn't expel the baby out. That's an important concept, I would imagine, right? And then we also say that there's beta-2 receptors that are present on the liver and on the pancreas, but not as significant as ones that were really relevant to our pharmacology. And then lastly, we said that there was beta-3 receptors, and these were primarily present. We said that they're present on the adipose tissue, but it's not super relevant. But they're present on the the actual, um, not the uterine, I'm sorry, the bladder smooth muscle. And so if you hit the bladder smooth muscle with the epinephrine and norepinephrine, they hit that receptor, it actually causes smooth muscle relaxation there, and it won't allow for the bladder to contract. Okay, so that's a very important concept. So again, kind of recapping all of these things, adrenergic neurons are neurons of the sympathetic nervous system. They release norepinephrine onto multiple target organs. They exert their effect on the target organs via the alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, beta-2, or beta-3 receptors, which we've discussed. One other thing that I need to talk to you about is that norepinephrine is not the only kind of neurotransmitter or hormone of the adrenergic system. There is another one. Do you guys know what it is? It's epinephrine. And epinephrine is not released particularly from these sympathetic neurons from our central nervous system. It's released from the adrenal medulla primarily. So remember, we do have sympathetic flow to our adrenal medulla, which tells the adrenal medulla, hey, start pumping out more norepinephrine, but also pump out some epinephrine. And again, epinephrine will have this similar effect to norepinephrine, and then it can bind onto all the alpha ones, the beta ones, the beta twos, the beta threes. But let me see if Rob was paying attention last week. If I were to kind of compare here between norepinephrine and epinephrine, norepinephrine loves which receptors more than the other. Do you remember, Rob? Dude, come on. Don't put me on the spot. <laughs> you know I don't know this. <laughs> You know I have no idea. There's oh, certain, hey, there's certain – again, I'm a physical therapist. There's certain things that I absolutely know. If it's musculoskeletal, if it's orthopedics, I know it. Oh. But you ask me this kind of question, I don't know it. I am so sorry. Well, if, let me help Robbo out. So if you guys remember from last week, the norepinephrine loves the alpha receptors more than the beta receptors. And then the epinephrine loves those beta receptors more than it loves the alpha receptors. And if you remember, just chemical structure wise, it's due to that extra kind of like carbon chain that it has coming off the amine group. All right. But that really covers the basic physiology, Rob. Sorry for putting you on the spot, bro. <laughs> Don't worry, engineers. I I will get him back, and I, you and I promise will. you, I'll share with you what I do to him. I'll I'll get him back. He will. He will. All right. Now we have an understanding of the normal physiology of adrenergic antagonists, and when the sympathetic nervous system is releasing norepinephrine, epinephrine, we know how they are going to affect receptors and the effect they're going to have on them. So we have all that information down pat. Cool. And again, I know, no, I don't know the answer to whatever. <laughs> whatever. We're, we're moving past it, guys. We're moving past it. So now we have to, we're going to move into the drugs now, right? The good stuff. 
So we have to figure out now when we give drugs like adrenergic antagonists, how they're really opposing these effects that we all just, that we just talked about. So we have to figure out our alpha antagonists, our beta antagonists, and even at the end, some mixed antagonists. And then even after that, if there's any adverse effects, Zach, you can just kind of sprinkle them in. That would be great. Absolutely. So let's kind of get started here. So you have alpha antagonists, right? So these are drugs that are basically going to bind onto the alpha receptors, and they're just going to basically oppose or block or not allow for norepinephrine, epinephrine to bind to them. And so the effects that norepinephrine, epinephrine would have on those receptors that we just took some time to talk about, we're going to oppose. You see, you see how important it is to kind of cover the physiology. If we get that down, all we're going to do is... With agonists, we're going to enhance that physiology. <laughs> if it's antagonists, we're going to oppose that physiology. So let's talk about what we would do. So the first category is going to be our um, alpha-1 blockers. So if you give drugs that are alpha-1 blockers, there's a category of these. These are the um, prazosin, terazosin, doxazosin, tamsulosin. Interesting drugs, but what they'll do is they'll bind onto the alpha-1 receptors and oppose norepinephrine and epinephrine from being able to bind onto them. And so if they did bind onto all these three target organs that we discussed, which let's say it binds onto the pupil, it binds onto the, uh, you know, this, this, the actual smooth muscle around the urethra, or it binds onto the smooth muscle and the vascular smooth muscle, what's the effects that we'll get? Well, it's going to oppose the normal action there. In other words, it's not going to vasoconstrict. It will... You got it, vasodilate. If it vasodilates, it reduces the resistance and drops the blood pressure. What would be a good indication for this, my friends? Hypertension. It's not one of your first-line agents, though. So just remember that we can use this in patients who have hypertension because it can drop the blood pressure, but it is not going to be your first-line agent. The other thing I think it's really important to remember, though, with these, and I think that's often forgotten, like we talked about with alpha-1 agonists, is that you have alpha-1 receptors not just present on arteries, my friends, you also have them present on veins. And so if you get the alpha-1 receptors on the veins, it's not going to venoconstrict, it's going to venodilate, you're not going to get as much venous return, and so you get a lower preload or lower stroke volume, a lower cardiac output, and again, a lower blood pressure. So two kind of effects there with that one. Now, the other effect is that it helps um, kind of relaxes the smooth muscle that's present around the urethrosphincter. So naturally, when we hit that, you know, whenever epinephrine and norepinephrine binds onto that, that sphincter muscle, it actually causes it to tighten up because you don't want to pee or poop your pants undesirably. So if we give a drug that relaxes that, it'll open up the urethra and allow for urine to flow out of the bladder a lot easy. So think about using this in patients who have a big old pumpkin of a prostate gland, um, which I imagine at one point in time, me and Rob will have in the future. It's it's inevitable, <laughs> but it's going to suck. But yeah, that good old BPH is a son of a gun. So if you think about it, if you kind of give a little drug there, it's going to relax that sphincter. It's going to open up the urethra whenever there's a lot of like prostate gland that's kind of encroaching in on the urethra and allow for proper urine flow. So I think that's important to think about and why we would actually give this patient um, one of these alpha-1 blockers, a perfect scenario is if they have both BPH and hypertension, you get kind of a dual effect with that, which is pretty cool. So that's a that's an important one. The only other thing I would add on here is that there is an interesting concept here. I don't exactly know how it works, but um, especially prazosin, which is a really important thing in patients who have PTSD nightmares, there is some effect of how prazosin may decrease like the alpha mediated stress response. And so that may be very, very important to consider in patients who have those PTSD nightmares. But that would be the alpha one blockers. Now you're probably like, Zach, what about the eyeball? Is there any negative thing that can come from that? Yeah. There actually is. And so what it's, it's a, I've never seen it. I imagine if someone was an ophthalmologist or they work with the eye a lot more, they've possibly seen it. But 
whenever a patient's getting ready to get some type of procedure done, um, sometimes if you give this drug, if they take this drug, um, like a prazosin or tamsulosin or doxazosin or prazosin, it'll dilate the, so generally whenever the sympathetic nervous system's activated, it kind of dilates the pupil. You're going to oppose that and cause it to constrict. When you cause it to constrict, what can happen is sometimes um, you can cause this weird thing where you can actually cause like this prolapse effect. It's called intraoperative uh, floppy iris syndrome. I can't say I've ever seen it, but it's something to imagine if someone's I going. I have to say I like that name. <laughs> I know. It's really <laughs> That's cool. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's a really cool one. So just watch out for that. You can see this potentially on your board exams, intraoperative fl floppy iris syndrome. It's just related to them getting some type of ophthalmological procedure done. And at the same time, they had taken their alpha-1 blocker that morning prior to the procedure. You may potentially see this as a complication. So watch out for that. And then the other adverse effect to watch out for <clears throat> is if you are kind of relaxing that sphincter muscle, yes, you may help the patient with their BPH and allow for them to urinate. Just be careful that they don't develop any urinary incontinence. Watch out for that. Um, you have to dial the dose back. And then the other one is that you're dilating arteries and veins. And so you can drop the patient's blood pressure a little bit. But more specifically, especially on the venous side, since it dilates the veins, if a patient goes from sitting to standing, they may just drop to the ground. Not because they have a heart attack. It's just because they, you, you kind of take away their venous return mechanisms. And so that's an important thing to think about. So watch out for orthostasis and some slight hypotension away from this drug. But that would be the alpha-1 blockers. The next one is the alpha one and two blockers. So you're like, wait a sec. Okay. They block alpha one and two. And then the ones that we just talked about is primarily just alpha one. Absolutely. So alpha one and alpha two blockers is going to be things like there's two drugs, phentolamine and phenoxybenzamine. I've only used one of these in my entire kind of career, but one of the things about these drugs is that <clears throat> I have to kind of mention it. There's a pharmacodynamic kind of like differentiation between these two. So Phentolamine is interesting in the sense that it's an active site blocker, meaning that whenever phentolamine binds onto the active site, you can't allow for norepinephrine, epinephrine to bind to that. I th I'd say that's pretty common for most drugs. Where it's a slightly little bit different is phenoxybenzamine. Phenoxybenzamine is an allosteric site binder. In other words, it binds onto another site other than the active site on the receptor, the alpha-1 or alpha-2 receptor, changes the shape of the receptor so that it can't bind the norepinephrine and epinephrine. So you get the same effect, but just one's a little bit more different than the other, which is an important thing that you may see on your exams. Nonetheless, let's move on to the next aspect here. When we utilize these drugs, what are they doing? Well, they're binding onto the alpha-1 receptor. So you're getting the same effect here, right? You're, you're dilating the arteries, you're dilating the veins. Again, I wouldn't worry too much about the urethral sphincters and the anal sphincters. I wouldn't worry too much about the iris muscle. Just focus on the blood vessels. But then you're also getting the blockage of the um, the alpha-2 receptors. So whenever you have these drugs and they hit the alpha-2 receptors, here's where it's a little bit interesting. When you hit the alpha-2 receptors and you stimulate them, right? When you stimulate them as an agonist, it inhibits norepinephrine release. If you give them an antagonist, it's going to stimulate norepinephrine release from your central nervous system. So think about that. If I have my alpha-2 drug bind on there and stimulate norepinephrine release, I have more norepinephrine release going to the heart and my blood vessels. That means that my heart rate will go up, my contractility will go up, and I'll try and attempt to vasoconstrict my blood vessels even more. That's an interesting concept. And so that's why this is a, a really kind of a weird kind of drug. So whenever you give these drugs, phentolamine, phenoxybenzamine, you're seeing kind of an interesting concept here. One is they can directly bind onto the arteries and veins and cause them to vasodilate very powerfully. 
but then they also stimulate the central norepinephrine drive. But I want you to think about this. If you have a drug already kind of like causing the, the vessels to relax very nicely, all right, and they're basically blocking norepinephrine, epinephrine from being released onto the blood vessels. You also are kind of causing the sympathetic drive from those central nervous system to be increased. That means that you have an increased norepinephrine, epinephrine release onto the heart and increased norepinephrine, epinephrine release onto the blood vessels. The blood vessels doesn't make a dang bit of difference because I have phentolamine and phenoxybenzamine there to block every single site. So the blood vessels are going to vasodilate no matter what. That's going to reduce the resistance and drop the blood pressure. But I don't have any phentolamine and phenoxybenzamine on the beta receptors on the heart. So that's going to end up kind of continuing to affect and be there no matter what. So one of the adverse effects of phentolamine and phenoxybenzamine is that you can't stop the actual sympathetic drive to the heart. So they're going to have tachycardias or tachyarrhythmias as a potential complication of this drug. So just watch out for that. But nonetheless, they do have the ability to powerfully vasodilate. So if they vasodilate, that may be a potential drug to give in hypertension, but it's a weird drug. It's not your first line drug like your alpha one blockers selectively. It's more in hypertensive crises. And so let me tell you three particular indications of when you would use this. One is if a patient is taking cocaine and they take massive amounts of cocaine or booger sugar, and that thing causes a massive noroepinephrine release from your central nervous system, but they also bind onto the alpha one receptors on your arteries. If I give phentolamine, it's going to bind to the alpha-1 receptors or phenoxybenzamine. If I give it, what is it going to do? It's going to help to, again, oppose any norepinephrine, epinephrine, or any other drug from binding onto the alpha-1 receptors and allow for them to vasodilate. So cocaine won't be able to produce that effect on the blood vessels to cause vasoconstriction. The other thing that cocaine does, if you guys remember from the last uh, podcast, is that it can increase norepinephrine release from your central nervous system. And so you would get an increased like sympathetic drive to your blood vessels, which would try to release again, more norepinephrine, more epinephrine to try to cause an increased vasoconstrictive response. But again, I'm going to block all of that if I have phentolamine and phenoxybenzamine present, which is a cool concept. And the same thing, um, we can also use this in patients who have what's called a hypertensive crisis secondary to uh, tyramine. So if they're taking tyramine and a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, what happens with those is that, again, they have a massive norepinephrine surge from the central nervous system, and we're going to block norepinephrine epinephrine from being able to bind onto the alpha receptors present on the arteries. And so they will not vasoconstrict, they will vasodilate. So you guys are getting the point here. Monoamine oxidase inhibitors with tyramine and cocaine cause an increased sympathetic drive to try to cause the vessels to vasoconstrict. You're just going to oppose that actual norepinephrine epinephrine at the blood vessels. One more disease is when you have a massive release of epinephrine and norepinephrine from the adrenal medulla. When you have a tumor, a pheochromocytoma. So pheochromocytomas just pump out massive amounts of epinephrine, norepinephrine, and they can get and bind onto the blood vessels, the alpha-1 receptors. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to block the alpha-1 receptors and prevent them from being able to bind there. And so that's the interesting concept here. But again, watch out for the adverse effect with these, which is whenever you can kind of get that non-opposed or unopposed uh, sympathetic flow onto the heart. You don't have any beta receptors that you can bind with this drug, so they will get tachycardic with this drug. The only other indication and the only time I've ever used this drug is um, I one time, Rob, I had a patient who was <clears throat> hypotensive when we were running <clears throat> norepinephrine. And we were running the norepinephrine, they were running it through a peripheral IV, 
And then what happened is the peripheral IV must have kind of like gotten out of the vessel and all the norepinephrine was just surging into their subcutaneous tissue. And so then there was just this big old huge pocket of norepinephrine just sitting in their tissue. And the problem with that is it can squeeze the cutaneous vessels and then cause necrosis of their skin. Oh, and so, Yeah. So in those situations where you have like a massive vasopressor extravasation, you can kind of inject a little bit of phentolamine right into the actual kind of area where the, the drug extravasated to prevent it from binding on. So you're basically b- blocking the alpha-1 receptors and like the subcutaneous tissue. So that they don't vasoconstrict and you lose blood flow to the skin and then end up with a necrotic tissue. So that's the only other indication. But that would cover your alpha blockers. That would cover the alpha-1 selective and then the alpha-1 and alpha-2, which are the non-selective alpha blockers. The next one is your beta blockers. So there's beta-1 blockers. There's beta-1 and 2 blockers as well. So let's talk about the primary selective or cardioselective because beta-1 blockers are primarily on the heart. They're also on the JG cells, but again, primarily the heart is the one that I wanted you to focus on. So if you have beta-1 receptors in the heart, you're going to get that cardioselective function. So this is going to be metoprolol, esmolol, basoprolol, acebutalol, atenolol, all the dang alols. Now, with these drugs, I want you to try to keep it simple, my friends. If you're giving these drugs, what they're going to do is, is they are going to bind onto the beta-1 receptors and prevent them from allowing norepinephrine, epinephrine to exert their effect, especially on the heart. So they'll reduce the heart rate and they'll reduce the contractility of the heart because we already know, we already talked about them beginning with the physiology. We're going to drop their heart rate, drop their contractility. Why in the world would that be potentially beneficial? Well, let's say that we have a patient whose heart rate's going really, really fast. We could slow that down. So in patients who have atrial fibrillation, supraventricular tachycardia that are going a little bit too fast and we want to rate control them, we can block the AV node and slow down the conduction through the heart and that may drop their heart rate. Well, that's one benefit. The other benefit is what if I have a patient who has some type of process in their heart where they really, like let's say they have a plaque within one of their coronary vessels and the plaque within their coronary vessels is kind of reducing oxygen supply. And so if the heart's working hard, in other words, it's contracting really hard or it's beating really fast, then the demand is going up because they're consuming lots of oxygen. What if I reduce their heart rate, reduce their contractility, reduce their oxygen consumption? I can level out that balance. And so in patients who have what's called coronary artery disease or they have like angina or myocardial infarctions, especially post-MI, this is a great drug that it can actually lower the heart rate, lower the contractility and reduce the oxygen demand so that you don't cause an oxygen supply demand mismatch. The other way that we could actually potentially have benefit is in another disease called hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. And hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, they have this big fat septum that's kind of bulging into the um, kind of the aortic outflow tract. And so when they bulge outwards, they prevent cardiac output from getting out of the heart. So you can't get blood out of the left ventricle and into the aorta. And so one of the things that I got to do is, is really try my best to reduce the contractility of the heart. Okay. If I reduce the contractility of the heart, I won't cause it to contract as powerfully and bulge into the left ventricular outflow tract and obstruct that flow. So I'm going to get beta blockers and beta blockers will reduce contractility. The other thing is if I reduce their heart rate, I allow for their, their diastole to be a little bit longer. So their filling period. And if they fill a little bit longer, their ventricles will get filled more and it'll kind of stretch out that big fat septum and reduce the obstruction around the aortic outflow tract. And that'll again, improve my forward flow out of the heart. So that's another potential benefit with this uh, disease. So slowing down AFib SVT, Reducing oxygen demand in angina and MI, 
and then improving left ventricular outflow tract obstruction and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. One other one is in patients who have heart failure or they have a post MI, they have a lot of like neurohormonal mechanisms. So in other words, their cardiac outputs are kind of lower and patients who have heart failure or their post MI, if it's a pretty decent MI. And so if their cardiac output's lower, they don't perfuse their kidneys uh, primarily very well. If you don't perfuse your kidneys, your kidneys kind of sense that as a lower kind of per effective arterial volume me measurement. And they say, ooh, this is not good. They're not perfusing me very well. I'm going to release renin. It triggers the whole renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system, and also kind of triggers your sympathetic reflex system when your cardiac output's dropped. And the problem with that is that whenever your renin angiotensin aldosterone system is on and your sympathetic nervous system is on after a patient has heart failure and MI, it really causes a lot of remodeling of the heart because it overfills the heart or it increases afterload, which makes the heart have to hypertrophy. And if you fill it up too much, then it's going to dilate. And so it just causes all these problems that can really cause worsening disease of heart failure, worsening MI, uh, remodeling, and then increased mortality. So giving beta blockers may block the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone release from, from the kidneys, because there's beta-1 receptors that are present on the kidneys. And it also may block the sympathetic reflex flow from the low cardiac output. All of these things reduce cardiac remodeling and then reduce the mortality effect in patients who have heart failure or MI. So cool drug um, class in this situation. I, I actually am a big fan of these. Again, they're not really good as a hypertensive agent primarily. Um, you would think that they are, but they're more of an, a hypertensive agent that is an add-on therapy if they have one of these four diseases that I just discussed. So attack arrhythmia of some kind like AFib or SVT, heart failure, um, or some type of coronary artery disease, post-MI, or hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy. Those would be the primary indications of why you would add this on. All right, next one, beta-1 and beta-2 blockers. So with beta-1 and beta-2 blockers, these are drugs like natalol, propanolol, timolol, really interesting drugs. So remember, there is beta receptors um, that are present, especially the beta-2 receptors. They're present on like the ciliary body, which is important for being able to control the shape of the lens and also secretes aqueous humor. Um, and so whenever you kind of stimulate those beta-2 receptors, they will stimulate aqueous humor production. And that can kind of cause a little bit more fluid to accumulate within the, you know, posterior segment and uh, I'm sorry, the posterior chamber and anterior chamber of the anterior segment of the eye, basically increasing an intraocular pressure. So in patients who already have high intraocular pressure, like glaucoma, I could give a drug that actually could reduce the ciliary production of um, aqueous humor, and that would reduce the intraocular pressure. Um, and so that would be a drug called um, uh, timolol. Timolol is really the only one out of these three that can really be utilized in patients who have glaucoma. The other ones are interesting. So <laughs> propanolol can have a lot of effects. It's, it's a decent drug, a very interesting kind of drug. But what it can do is it can be used in these situations like thyroid storm. Because in patients who have thyroid toxicosis or thyroid storm, they have a massive thyroid release. And what thyroid hormone does is it increases the sensitivity of your sympathetic nervous system. So it increases the expression of beta-1 receptors and on the heart and on the muscle spindles, etc. So what happens is, is if you give propanolol, you're going to block the beta-1 receptors on the heart and the beta-2 receptors that are present on your, your muscle spindles. And because of that, you'll reduce a lot of the sympathetic drive from the heart. So you'll reduce their tachycardia, their hypertension, and you'll also oppose the trimmering effect that they can get from the thyrotoxicosis because you're blocking the muscle spindle effect. So interesting concept. There's also a utilization of this drug in patients who have portal hypertension, more as a prophylactic drug. So when patients have portal hypertension, their portal venous pressures are super high. 
And so one of the ways that I want to reduce the amount of like pressure within that portal vein is I could do my best to try to be able to reduce the amount of blood flow coming out of the heart that fills the splanchnic arteries and that runs through the portal vein. That may be beneficial. Um, so that's what I would consider doing. So I could give a beta blocker like propanolol. It would reduce the heart rate. It would reduce the cardiac output. And I would reduce the amount of blood that's actually kind of going through my mesenteric arterial circulation and then gets fed into the mesenteric venous circulation and less blood going through my portal venous system. If there's less blood flow through the portal venous system, the pressures may potentially drop a little bit. The other thing that it could potentially do is it actually may bind onto the beta-2 receptors that are present on the splanchnic arteries in general. And if you kind of bind onto those beta-2 receptors on the actual splanchnic arteries, it may vasodilate them a little bit and then also reduce the blood flow through the um, splanchnic arteries and then filling into the portal venous system. And that will reduce the portal pressures. So the next two are going to be migraines and tremors. So just really quickly on how these are involved. Really, um, when you utilize beta blockers, again, you got to remember that you have the beta-2 effect of these. So if you have a beta-2 effect, you can actually cause vasodilation. So propanolol can actually cause beta-2 cerebrovessel vasodilation, which can cause them to just distend a little bit more and push onto the pain receptors around the dura mater in the brain, which may tr you know trigger a headache process to occur. Right. So whenever we actually give a, a propanolol, propanolol will actually block the beta-2 receptors that cause a cerebrovessel vasodilation, prevent them from kind of stretching and distending and pushing on those pain receptors in the dura mater, and then alleviate the headache. So again, whenever you stimulate the beta-2 receptors, you will cause cerebrovessel vasodilation, stretch them, push on the pain receptors, and cause a headache. If you oppose that, you won't allow for as much cerebrovessel vasodilation with propanolol, and that'll prevent the pain receptor stimulation in the dura matter. And that'll help with headaches, particularly migraine prophylaxis. Tremors, it just basically blocks the beta-2 receptors that are present on the muscle spindle. So whenever you stimulate beta-2 receptors on the muscle spindles, you increase the activation, the firing of the afferent, efferent signals from the muscle spindle, causing them to kind of contract a little bit more and kind of go into this like twitching situation. So you end up with tremors. If you oppose that and kind of hit the beta-2 receptors on the muscle spindles, you relax the muscle spindles and prevent the increasing signals, which trigger tremors. And so that'll help with tremors, particularly essential tremors. All right, my friends, now we go into the beta and alpha blockers, that mixed blocker that Rob was talking about. There's really only two drugs in this category, and that is carvedilol and labetalol. Carvedilol and labetalol are really interesting because they have alpha and beta blockades. So they block alpha receptors, they block beta-1 receptors, and they can even block some of the beta-2 receptors. So what are the kind of benefits of this? Well, if you block the beta receptors, you get the same thing from the beta receptor blockers. You reduce heart rate, you reduce contractility. That's a potentially beneficial thing. But you also get in our um, alpha-1 vessel re uh, relaxation. So in other words, um, you inhibit the alpha-1 receptors, you're going to promote a vasodilatory effect. So you'll vasodilate the arteries that will reduce the resistance and reduce the blood pressure. So you get kind of a two-part combo with this drug that you can reduce cardiac output that can reduce blood pressure, and you can reduce resistance, which can reduce blood pressure, making it a very attractive agent for hypertension. So remember that hypertension, this is a potentially beneficial drug category, that being carvedilol and labetalol. If you had to compare which one would be more powerful, labetalol is going to be more powerful as a hypertensive agent. You can also use carvedilol um, in portal hypertension like propanolol. So you get a triple action from this one compared to propanolol. So propanolol hits the beta-1 receptors in the heart, which drops your heart rate, cardiac output, drops your perfusion through the splanchnic circulation, reduces the amount of blood going into the portal vein. Also dilates the splanchnic arteries, which reduces the amount of blood flow via uh, this the arterial circulation and then to the portal vein. 
With labetalol or carvedilol, particularly carvedilol, I must add, you block the beta-1 receptors in the heart. So if you block the beta-1 receptors in the heart, you drop their heart rate, you drop their cardiac output, you drop their perfusion to the splanchnic arterial system, and then reduce the amount of blood flow getting into the portal vein. You also hit the beta-2 receptors, which will actually cause vasodilation um, of the splanchnic arterial circulation, reducing the amount of blood flow through that circulation. And so again, you won't have as much blood flow going through the arterial circulation, not as much blood flow filling into the portal vein. And then you have the alpha-1 blockade, and there is alpha-1 receptors on the portal vein itself. If you hit the alpha-1 receptor there, it'll actually promote what? vasodilation of the portal vein that'll reduce the amount of resistance of blood flow through there and that'll reduce the portal venous pressures. So that's another potential benefit from this one. And then lastly, especially carvedilol, is very beneficial in patients who have heart failure. And again, think about it. When patients have heart failure, they have a reduced cardiac output. They, as a response of the reduced cardiac output, their effective arterial blood volume drops. It activates the baroreceptors, triggers the sympathetic reflex, also causes the JG cells to release renin. So you get an increased sympathetic outflow and you get an increased renin angiotensin aldosterone system. They cause remodeling of the heart and lead to increased mortality. If you block (laughs) the beta-1 receptors, right, on the heart, you prevent the cardiac remodeling there. If you block the beta-1 receptors on the JG cells, you block the remodeling that's going to be affected from the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, and you lower mortality. So that would really cover those categories. Now, quickly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to run through the adverse effects that I want you to think about, and it should be pretty straightforward. With alpha blockers, what are you doing? To the arteries, you are vasodilating them. You're lowering the BP. Watch out for hypotension. With the vasodilatory effect, though, especially in the you know in, in that, uh, that 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 appendage you have hanging from the body, uh, just be careful because if you vasodilate those puppies, you may increase the blood flow to it, and then you know it can definitely increase the risk of what's called priapism. So just be careful with that. The next thing is that um, whenever you do dilate arteries, you reduce resistance and you can drop blood pressure so it can activate the baroreceptors and trigger a reflexive sympathetic tachycardia. So watch out for reflex tachycardia as another effect with any type of alpha blocker. So any drug that has an alpha blocking activity can cause reflex tachycardia, can cause hypotension, and potentially can cause... All right. Next thing, there is alpha-1 receptors that are present on the veins. If you dilate the veins, you reduce the venous return to the heart. You reduce the actual stroke volume, cardiac output, and blood pressure. And so this is very, very specific with postural changes. So if a patient has orthostatic hypotension, just realize that this could be a result of any drug that has alpha-1 blocking activity. The other thing is that whenever you... um This is another terrible thing, but whenever you have uh, the internal urethral sphincter, whenever it's kind of contracted, there's two functions that one is obviously to prevent urination and the other one is to prevent sperm from refluxing back up into the bladder. And that's a literally a true thing because the prosthetic urethra is right next to your, you know, your actual internal urethral sphincter. So it's designed to prevent reflux, retrograde ejaculation. Whenever you give alpha blockers, you relax the sphincter. So it's designed to allow for urine to flow out of the bladder. So there's increased risk of urinary frequency. But also, there's a chance for the sperm to say, whoop, I'm going to go up into the bladder and create this possibility called retrograde ejaculation. The pupil is the other thing, remember, with the alpha-1 receptor that, again, what is that thing that I told you during like a cataract surgery? It can cause pupillary dilation and cause that sucker to pop out through it. It's called intraoperative floppy iris syndrome. So you can see this with any kind of alpha-1 blocker, especially the pure alpha-1 blockers. 
All right, alpha two blockers. What would you get for this one? I already told you, you're you're basically hitting the alpha two receptors. You're blocking the alpha two receptors on the presynaptic nerve terminal, which is causing a increase in norepinephrine release to the heart because you're blocking the effect of the alpha receptors on the blood vessels. So because of that, what are you going to do? You're only going to have unopposed beta-1 stimulation now, which is going to increase the patient's heart rate. So watch out for reflexive tachycardia with this drug category. All right, pure beta blockers, like particularly like your pure beta blocker, beta-1 blockers, you're primarily going to be blocking the nodal cells and the contractile cells in the heart. So watch out for pure beta blockers causing bradycardia, potentially an AV block in some patients, and also dropping patients' cardiac output. You really want to be careful in patients who have acute heart failure. So if they have acute heart failure or they're in cardiogenic shock, don't drop their cardiac output even more because they're very dependent upon that cardiac output. So that's very, very important to remember. Now, other drugs that are beta blockers that have maybe beta 2 activity or that maybe have alpha activity, you also want to watch out for the effect that they can have on the blood vessels. So again, if you vasodilate the arteries with alpha blockers or beta 2 blockers, you're going to get, um, well, sorry, I apologize. If you're blocking the alpha 1 receptors primarily, you're going to get a vasodilatory effect, and that can potentially cause hypotension. And again, increased blood flow potentially to the... The other thing is that you can get the um, blockage of the beta-2 receptors that are present on the bronchial smooth muscle. And so generally, when you actually cause stimulation of the beta-2 receptors in the bronchial smooth muscle, it causes bronchodilation. You're going to oppose that. So you're going to cause bronchospasm. And so this can actually worsen patients who have already pre-existing kind of like bronchospastic airways like asthma, COPD, or things to that effect. The other thing that you want to watch out for is that the effect that it can have on your kind of glucose system. So whenever a patient has um, hypoglycemia, they develop a sympathetic reflex. So hypoglycemia can trigger your central nervous system and activate your sympathetic nervous system to say, hey, blood sugar is low. Let's kind of try to increase my sympathetic drive to increase my blood glucose levels, increase my heart rate, cause me to palpitate, cause me to have sweating, cause me to become a little bit more like obvious to myself so that I can become aware, hey, something ain't right and I should check my glucose. Well, Whenever you block that sympathetic reflex by giving patients beta blockers, maybe beta 1, beta 2 blockers, all those effects, you blunt that sympathetic reflex. And they may not become aware that they're hypoglycemic. They may not become tachycardic. They may not develop palpitations. They may not develop a sense of kind of like confusion or um, all of these other effects. And so it can mask it. So watch out for hypoglycemia unawareness in these patients. The other thing that I would also be aware of is that sometimes with these drugs is that when you think about beta receptors, they do control what's called your sodium potassium ATPases. So whenever you stimulate the beta 2 receptors, you actually increase the activity of the sodium potassium pumps. So in other words, you pump the sodium into the cell and you pump the potassium, I'm sorry, you pump the sodium out of the cell and pump potassium into the cell. And so whenever you actually get a beta 2 blocker, you inhibit the sodium potassium pumps. If you inhibit the sodium potassium pumps, now you can't pump sodium out of the cell and you can't pump potassium into the cell. And so the potassium that's not going into the cell stays in the blood and it can actually trigger hyperkalemia. The other thing to watch out for with beta blockers, and I mean like pure beta blockers, um, try to be careful giving this to patients who have cocaine-induced hypertension. So if a patient has cocaine-induced hypertension or pheochromocytoma or a hypertensive crisis all related to 
um, monoamine oxidases and tyramine. So that, that, that those three situations don't give them beta blockers. The reason why is on our blood vessels, we have two receptors, alpha one receptors and beta two receptors. Alpha one receptors promote vasoconstriction. Beta two receptors promote vasodilation. There's a nice kind of balance between the two. If you give cocaine or monoamine oxidases and uh, with tyramine, that causes an increased norepinephrine release, or you have pheochromocytoma, and that's causing a lot of norepinephrine, epinephrine release, or cocaine is causing a lot of norepinephrine, epinephrine release, the norepinephrine, epinephrine will bind onto both the alpha-1 receptors and the beta-2 receptors. And so if you hit the alpha-1 receptors, you'll vasoconstrict. If you hit the beta-2 receptors, you'll vasodilate. And you kind of get like this balance. Now you give them a beta blocker. Okay, the norepinephrine epinephrine is only binding onto the alpha one receptors, promoting the most vasoconstriction of their entire life. And you give them a beta two receptor and block their natural vasodilatory function. Now they have no compensation, no opposition to the vasoconstriction by the alpha one receptors. Their blood pressure is going to shoot up through the roof. So with that being said, and those situations where there's massive norepinephrine epinephrine release from pheos, from hypertensive crisis, from monoamine oxidase inhibitors with tyramine or from cocaine, the booger sugar, those situations stick with your pure alpha blockers like phentolamine, phenoxybenzamine. You can even consider the alpha one blockers as well. Prazosin, terazosin, those kinds of effects as well. All right. <clears throat> That would cover the adverse effects of beta blockers. One of the things that kind of add on to this, though, with the additional concept here is that beta blocker overdoses is a very important thing to be able to recognize. So oftentimes patients may be giving a little bit too much beta blockers because they're trying to control their AFib or their SVT or their hypertension or whatever it is. And they just give a little bit too much. Watch out for excessive bradycardia, hypotension, bronchospasm, severe hypoglycemia, and hyperkalemia. If you see any of these things and they develop acutely, this could be a beta blocker overdose. And it can actually put a patient into cardiogenic shock from the uh, bradycardia and the hypotension. And so the antidote to reverse that would be glucagon. So just remember that, guys. But my friends, that that actually covers everything for the kind of the all these adrenergic antagonists, if you will. All right, awesome. So that covers adrenergic antagonists. Our next episode, we're going to be moving into now the cholinergic system, talking about the parasympathetic nervous system. We're going to start it off with cholinergic agonists. We hope to see you all there.